0: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians, where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee, and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention.
1: On today's episode, we speak to Dr. Tiaba Ahmed, a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist who has focused on pelvic pain in her Manhattan practice. We discuss the importance of having those difficult discussions with your patients that sometimes reveal the causes of their pain that might go overlooked, and why it's important to take a multidisciplinary approach to these very challenging problems. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Tayaba Ahmed, who is a physiatrist. Uh, For those who don't know what that is, a physiatrist is someone who specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation. She did her BSDO at the New York Institute of Technology, where I am from, on Long Island, and uh, then did her residency training at NYU Rusk Institute for Rehabilitation. she then decided to further subspecialize and focus on pelvic pain, of all things. Now, I before I chose to do otolaryngology, I, I actually thought I was going to be a physiatrist, and uh, so I have some knowledge of it. And this is something that I did not realize uh, was something that is treated by people in this specialty. So one of the reasons we decided to talk today is she sees lots of patients that really benefit from her help, but frequently practitioners don't know that she's out there as, as a resource to send their patients to. So first, Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. And if you could let us know how you ended up deciding to, to specialize in this.
2: Um, thank you so much for having me. And I will kind of just, honestly, I was doing my residency at NYU. I met my colleagues, um, Dr. Shikande, Allison Shikande, and Charity Hill. And um, we kind of went our own ways after residency. Allison had started doing the Women's Health Institute at Cornell. And then I had two kids. (laughs) And then when she started to see that there was like a huge need for this, she had asked if I wanted to shadow her and kind of come in and see what she was doing. And, you know, I did, I spent a couple of months with her and I saw that it was way more rewarding than doing what I was doing as a sports medicine doctor. Um, and then we decided to join together when we started our own clinic and, you know, the rest is history. We've just been, we've been doing only pelvic pain. And essentially what we, what I was doing before was treating the muscles, joints, um, and the ligaments of the ankles, the knees, the back, the shoulders. But now I just do it up the pelvis, so anything below the belly button and above the knees.
1: In uh, in ENT, it's from the dura to the pleura. So uh, I'm,
2: I'm
1: <laughs> there's maybe a little a little rhyme that we could make for that. Um, so so, do you think there was the, as as specific as that is? Do you find that there are enough patients that suffer from these problems to keep a to keep a practice busy, um,
2: I would say so. You know, we've been we've been doing that. We see about you know a lot of patients a month. Um, maybe I don't really know. I don't actually know the numbers between all three of us because we all work part time. Well, sort of part time. I'm like four days. My other colleagues are four and one's two days. But we we do. I mean, the thing is, is a lot of our patients are coming after from GYNs, and they're coming from GI doctors and urologists, and they're patients who kind of exhausted these other doctors and these other subspecialties saying, you know, I'm having this urination problem, I'm having this GI constipation problem, I'm constantly having pain with sex, and I, I don't know what to do, and these other subspecialties aren't able to help them, mostly because they aren't addressing the muscles and the joints and the nerves of the pelvis. And they're only looking at their organ system. So, what we're doing is stepping back and looking at all the organ systems and trying to figure out what's wrong with the muscles. And, um, you know, sometimes we find hernias and sometimes we find labral tears. And that's because we're sports medicine doctors. So, we're looking for those things. Whereas, I'm not looking for, you know, an ovarian torsion and I'm not looking for prostate cancer. So, you know, we do get a lot of patients who, you know, how many of our patients have like actual gyn or GI um, issues? Not a lot, because most of the time they've already been to multiple doctors, multiple you know three or four urologists, two or three gyns, and then they come to us.
1: So, who would you say is your ideal patient? So, for those that now know that there is a pelvic pain specialist out there who who specializes in the musculoskeletal system. So you you mentioned the, the uh, urologists and and GYNs. Who are the patients that they should be sending you that maybe they're they're not aware that that you're out there for you to send them to?
2: So well, if a patient is chronically constipated and they you're, the GI doctor has done a colonoscopy and doesn't see any hemorrhoids, doesn't believe there's any fissures, um, and you know, they, most GI doctors should know about the pelvic floor muscles um, and doing a rectal examination, shouldn't be able to palpate the muscles and see if they're tense and tight. Um, you know, that, that Proctalgia fugax type patient. Um, sometimes that puborectalis muscle is so tight and when you do, you relax it, it, they are now able to go to the bathroom and have regular bowel movements. Um, so those are the types of patients. You know, it seems like a lot of times a lot of these patients go straight from their GI to a colorectal surgeon, and then they get Botox on those muscles. But as we know, Botox is a temporary solution, and so these patients are—I saw a patient who was 22 yesterday who came from a health, you know, health center, academic huge academic center in the city. I'm not going to give it away—and went straight from GI to colorectal and got Botox and didn't know about pelvic physical therapy. Didn't know about re- rectal valium suppositories, you know. Didn't know about trigger point injections to the pelvic floor. So she went from like a mildly conservative kind of like workup, making sure there's no like, you know, cancer or anything, to a drastic procedure that, you know, is going to be every three months, and that's kind of not a solution. Um, well, one for the patient, and two, the, uh, the back end of it is why is she con- chronically constipated. There's a good chance this young woman has endometriosis, which is a gynecologic condition that's often not really a big, you know, in medical school we didn't really learn a lot about it. Um, Whereas basically having endometrial like tissue in the that's supposed to be in the uterus now outside of the uterus. The problem is, is it, it can be on the bowel, which can cause that chronic constipation. It can also be on the pelvic floor, which can cause that muscle tightness, and it can also be on the bladder, which can cause urinary frequency and urgency, it causes patients to be, um, you know, have abdominal bloating, um, cramping, and, and terrible periods. So, period pain, not just like pain, you know, a little cramp here, take a Motrin, like the type of debilitating pain that they have all month long, or that, that could be with every with periods, but it could also be throughout the rest of the month because if this endometriosis is there all month, you know, it's not excised properly these conditions so this young woman when she was 13 she had a terrible painful periods, and then soon after she had this chronic constipation but it didn't you know she's so far gone to a gi and a colorectal but nobody's really addressing the actual problem and I, you know if i if you ask her like how are your periods she's like oh so terrible and what are you doing about it well nothing i just you know deal with it i thought it was normal to have painful periods but like it's not. And I don't think Botox, the reason she's still here and still chronically constipated despite having Botox and coming to see me is because she's like, well, I have pain, like, you know, pain with my periods and I have urinary frequency and I have pain with sex because I can't, nothing can actually get inside of me because my muscles are so tight despite having Botox. So th- that's the type of patient that needs to get to me because. You know, we try to do a multidisciplinary approach and look at it and step back and see, you know, not just deal with the GI and not just deal with the euro. You know, we have to deal with everything. Otherwise, people don't get better.
1: So it sounds like you're at the center of that multidisciplinary team. So you make sure that everybody has crossed their T's and dot their I's and and see and, and that everybody has seen all the appropriate specialists in addition to doing the musculoskeletal care that is... It sounds like frequently neglected, um, just because uh, yeah. physicians aren't, aren't as aware as they could be. So, so um, you, you'd mentioned, you know, learning that we all learn about endometriosis in medical school. Um, so uh, was there anything that you found that you learned in medical school that turned out to be incorrect when you became as specialized as you are now?
2: Well, I feel not. I don't know about medical school. Was a long time ago, but in residency, I felt like we were always told that, like you know, I, I think I remember one attending saying that, like pelvic pain, you know, it's kind of in their head, and these people they don't, you know, it's, they, they they cause it and it's psychosomatic. And I mean, I, it just gets like kind of crazy to me that that's what they used to deal pelvic like treat pelvic pain with. And a lot of these women they do hear that over and over again, and you know. There is a huge psychological component, anxiety, when you're chronically clenching and you're very, you know, there is that personality, that type A personality that has migraines, that clenches their teeth, and so they might have TMJ, that squeezes their pelvic floors all day long, males and females, surprisingly, we see a lot, we see a lot of males with this.
1: Very common uh, presentation of TMJ, ear pain. So those patients end up seeing us because they think they're getting ear infections or they've even been diagnosed with ear infections. So uh, I, yeah. I, an ENT, we definitely... I didn't think that that our two specialties would have overlapped at all, but there it is. <laughs> we, found, we found some, well, some yeah. common ground. And yeah, I can see how those become mm-hmm. then feedback loops, right? So your stress and anxiety creates this sensation, which causes you more stress and anxiety, which then creates the sensation. And, and then... then- yeah, Depression
2: and, and quicksand. anxiety pain and that central sensitization and now these people are very sensitized they have hot incredibly high thresholds of pain but they are super sensitized and it's harder to get them out of it and so we treat them with a lot of neuropathics um, medications um, we try to treat them but we also have to get to the root of it sometimes these patients have you know actual psychological conditions that that actually start. You know that's the beginning. I mean, it, we call it. We have this uh, this circle chart that we do at at work, and patients come in and out of that circle. We don't know where they're coming in in the cycle. And sometimes, you know, they've been raped. Sometimes there is trauma. Sometimes, you know, I always ask every patient about unwanted sexual contact. You know, there's a huge amount of patients with pelvic pain that have been raped, have um, child abuse in their past. Um, we ask everyone whether you know, even if it's just like sexual assault that's not necessarily rape and not necessarily related to their, their genitals. You know, people really, I mean, we, we see a lot of it and there is a lot of suicidal ideations and suicide from some of, some of these conditions. So it's not that there isn't a mental component. There, there certainly is, but we have to believe our patients. If, and you know, because when I do my physical exam, I find physical findings. If I didn't, well, then I might, there might be an issue. But if but if I'm finding physical findings and they're having pain at their ilioinguinal nerve and they're having pain over their pubic symphysis, chances are their pelvic floor muscles are very tight. When I do internal exams, I do feel that. Um, but, we, you know, I, I take that seriously and I treat my patients. Like a patient asked me today if I believed that she was actually in pain because she herself didn't know if she, was just like she's like am I crazy do I you know am I in do I have problems why am I having pain with sex why is this not going away why is this not getting better and you know they start to doubt themselves too because they're not like is this in my head and so we really have to believe our patients um and leave any mental illnesses to our to the psychiatrist and that's why you know we I refer to a lot of patients just for cognitive behavioral therapy um, EMDR, um, you know, if they just need a therapist to talk to, a sex therapist, um, sometimes my patients will be doing great. And then they still have pain and, you know, they need to see a somatic therapist and then things start, you know, to separate the mind and body and things start getting better. But um, I feel like a lot of this stuff we didn't learn. So, you know, somatic therapy, you know, I, I've come across a few in Manhattan and there's there's a therapist who I work with, and you know she works one on one with patients and trying to I, identify what is actually physical and what is mental and kind of get into the patient's mind and body and spirit and emotion and kind of like allow them to heal um, but it's more of like talk therapy but but she's like you know she works specific with patients who aren't able to separate the, the mind and the body. Yeah. And these There's a lot of like adjunct fields that like in pm and I, I know about, whereas I think a lot of, you know, my husband's an anesthesiologist. He doesn't know about these fields. He's like never even heard of like, you know, Reiki or cupping and, you know, different things. Like, I, you know, I deal with a lot of alternative medicine with my, you know, in the field because, you know, patients are tend tend not to be on opioids are my patients tend to try to deal with a lot of the rehab rehabilitating the body with acupuncture and meditation and craniosacral from osteopathic manipulation so there are different um alternative things that they can try and um you know i think in medical school they should teach these things as options besides just like one class.
1: yeah i think that's uh that's a topic for another day, but I'm, I'm on the same page as you. There's, there is a finite time that we have to spend, and um, I'm going to be changing the name. Actually, I might, I might end up doing it for this episode, not changing the name of the podcast, but the tagline being you know, everything w- that we should have learned while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle like w- knowing yeah. where fumarate and malate are in the citric acid cycle bear no nothing to my practice right now, but, uh, more yeah. really could be spent, uh, on, 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 on learning the fact that, that in issues with chronic pain, psychotherapy is, is valuable and also how to approach the patient that this is a possibility and get them to be on board with it. Right. And I think this is, This is a challenge um, for us. You know,
2: honestly, I feel like a lot of doctors are very scared to say the word, like, have you ever considered suicide? And honest, uh, you know, I'll admit I was one of those. And I just realized that like with mental, mental health, if I don't ask it, like, you just never know who's going to do it. Yeah. So I, now any, Anytime I ask a patient at any initial consult, I, you know, we go through the list of newest systems and I say, Are you, do you have any anxiety? Yes. Do you have any depression? Well, yeah. And have you ever thought about hurting yourself? No, no, I wouldn't. Maybe once or twice. I mean, we have to ask these things. Otherwise, it's on us. It's our, you know, that's so, part of our job. Do you find
1: that approach to be? The, the one that works for you to just cut through all the baloney and just well be as direct as possible? You know,
2: I think they actually appreciate it because yeah. I think they're so used to people not asking it. Yeah. And you know, it's like when you're talking to a friend who's like really sad, like you don't want to, you don't want to like step on their toes, but at the end of the day, like we owe it to our patients, like not to treat them like friends to treat them like patients. And I, I mean, that's how I feel. And in the beginning, I felt like, oh, you know, like, for instance, like, you know, you don't want to breach like weird topics. they not weird topics, but they shouldn't be weird topics. Like if a patient kind of seems like he might be a homosexual, and I'm treating pelvic pain, and I don't ask him if he's receiving or giving or taking, like, how am I going to know what's his pelvic pain issue? You know, like, could that be affecting his rectum or his penis? So, you know, it's awkward, and it's weird. But I've kind of like, I have to ask these things. I and whereas like someone else might
1: be like, I can't ask Yeah. The, in, in your, in your specialty, I think, I, I'm not sure how you go through a day with, without talking to every patient about uh, questions like that. It seems like that is, yeah. is how, how most of your day. Well, no,
2: so, yeah. I mean, with, the, with everyone, I definitely ask, okay, so all those, you know, sex questions, but you know, in the beginning I would feel strange cause I'd be like, I don't want someone to say like, you know, I'm homophobic or, but I think I'm homophobic if I don't ask it. Yeah. So that's, that's an I, excellent point. <laughs> I don't know. So that's, I just realized, you know what, I'm just going to be a better doctor and just ask, I think. And I hope you I'm not offending think, anyone.
1: No. And I think you can't be afraid of stuff like that because the patient's in a safe space and you need to know what you need to know in order to get them better. And you could even, I think you could even preface yeah. it with please recognize that what we're dealing with can sometimes seem silly or funny or maybe even offensive, but I'm, I have to ask these questions in order to figure out how to, how to help you better. Well,
2: um, yeah. I've actually had patients tell me they, they did want to kill themselves and they, they have plans and that's the thing that scares me. Cause like wow. when they do, then you're like, okay, now what? And, and it's my legal i it's my responsibility to make sure that they have a psychiatrist and an appointment scheduled and make you know that's i mean it's way more work, and I could see why people don't want to ask it because now you've added like all this work and documentation, but you know
1: oh, but at the end of the day, day yeah, this is our you save a life so yeah. this is this is our obligation um so yeah. Uh, I think we've, we've digressed into, into a little more of a darker place than we intended to. So. I mean, <laughs> that's can, can you, cause I think your, your specialty lends itself to that, but it also lends itself to some, to some levity, right? Are there, yeah. any, um, what are, what are some of the things that, that you see that, that our listeners might, might maybe give someone a chuckle? Um, or if that's not appropriate, which as I'm, saying that I, I, I recognize it might um, you know some some of the more again some of the more common consults.
2: Well I do hear some of like I do hear a lot of like the funniest stories. Um you know I don't know if my patients necessarily appreciate me making like jokes at their at their expense. Yeah. But I, think, I do hear I think- a lot
1: <laughs> I think we shouldn't go down that road now that I recognize that we're doing that. How about, how about about this? Um, Just what are some more common consults that you see, right? Common things that, that, that the gastroenterologists, the urologists uh, obviously as a, as an, um, but that they should be sending to you.
2: Urethral burning. A lot of people will, they'll go to their, you know, urgent care. They'll be like, "Can I have antibiotics?" They'll get antibiotics. The culture will never be done, or it will be done, and it'll come back, it'll come back negative. And then they'll go to another. They'll go to the urologist, and the urologist will give them a month of antibiotics, and then they'll go to another urologist. They that uro, they think that urologist missed something, and then they'll go to another uro. So, urethral burning, urinary frequency, urgency, um, or hesitancy, where or so soon after, usually they'll start to have some pain in their perineum. I'm talking about males now. So pain, well, male and female, but pain in the perineum, but males especially, pain, soreness after they ejaculate. Um, and usually sometimes, it usually it's one or the other. It's either the testicles or the penis. It's usually not both, um, but sometimes it's both. But sometimes it's just to the tip of the penis or the shaft of the penis or one-sided. Um Sometimes it's just like one testicle. So some, you know, a couple patients came in. One had trauma to the, like, was kicked in the balls by his friend, and not a great friend. And then had <laughs> testicular pain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, testicular pain. And so, you know, that was painful. And, and it's hard because once those muscles and nerves are irritated, so. I've had a patient actually have his testicle removed because it hurts so much. And he was like in his twenties and it didn't help because now he has phantom testicular pain. So, you know, at the end of the day, yeah. And and that was after some rough intercourse. Um, You know, it's kind of crazy because everybody's talking about like, you know, I was talking to a friend today who's also a physician. We were talking about how I'm always shocked at how much sex people are having. And she was (laughs) like, you know, it's because of Tinder. And all these apps, young millennials are able to access inter, like have intercourse so easily now, like people barely have to have any conversations and they're like young, they're just going out having sex all the time and they're not even in relationships. So like, it's just like, they're just having sex with a different person every day. And so of course, like they're very well aware, but there's a lot of like guilt with this. So sometimes people are like, Oh, I cheated on my boyfriend. And now my, I feel like I have a UTI. And then I was on these antibiotics and like, like but i don't understand and then i examine them and their their muscles are tight and they're like "Well, why are my muscles tight well how could this i just all i do is cheat on my boyfriend and now my muscles are tight and now how did this happen and, and i try to explain that pelvic floor dysfunction doesn't happen overnight usually it's like the perfect storm and it happens after like a few years of something and then something so it's not because she cheated just
1: once it sounds like it may have been because she cheated a bunch of times and all of that um intercourse well it could be
2: it could have been just like okay when he was a kid or like he was like in high school or college he had like a fall uh snowboarding for instance or a horseback rider and so a chronic injury to the tailbone and then a few months of being really successful type a personality sitting on chairs all day long 12 hours at a time and then they go and they have you know, unprotected sex or something with someone and cheated on someone. And then like, that was that person. Like, but you know, I'm basically going through the whole history from like puberty to like now and then figuring out what could be doing it. And sometimes I have no idea. And I'm like, well, are you sure you're not this? And they don't tell me. They they basically don't want to tell me stuff. Um, or sometimes it's something like, oh, well, when I was a kid, I had, I had a undescended testicle and then I, was you know 18 and I had an inguinal hernia and then when I was 25 I had um you know I had you know a lot of sex or something whatever and then my hernia pot and like now we find a hernia again and hernias are very closely related obviously to the testicles and and to the groin and the ilioinguinal nerve and all of it is very much connected and then it, interve- it runs right into the pelvic floor you can kind of see that right even as like just a regular doctor, we understand that the like just because they're not in, they run within each other. Like I try to explain it to patients, like your quads and your hamstrings, there's no line dividing the two saying These muscles are not connected to those muscles; they're totally independent of each other. Um, just the same way, your groin runs right into your genitals, so and your pelvic floor muscles. Um, so I, they can, they finally kind of see it. And then we like, we'll get them to a hernia specialist and they'll fix their hernia. We'll relax their pelvic floor. We'll, and then they get better.
1: When you say we relax the pelvic floor, what does that entail?
2: Um, so it's like a whole comprehensive plan. Um, I like tell my patients that I kind of treat you like, um, a dartboard and I throw all my darts at you because usually when they're coming to me, they're really distressed and distraught and they have like, they're at their width end. I mean, a lot of times there's a lot of crying, even with the males, there's crying involved. And so I might say, let's start with that vag- vag- uh, rectal or vaginal Valium, um, which is what it is. It's a suppository. You put Valium to your muscles to relax your muscles. Um, we might start with some nerve medications for the neurogenic inflammation. Uh, we might start trigger point injections. If they've never gone to pelvic physical therapy. So pelvic physical therapy is, pelvic physical therapy. So it's it's actually a, so I'm not a physical therapist despite what a lot of people think psychiatrists <laughs> do. We we prescribe physical therapy and we love our physical therapists and work with tons in New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut. We know all of them. And they do internal work on the patient. So if you had a tight muscle in your neck, you would go to a, get a massage or a physical therapy session to work on cervicalgia. It's the same thing except the myalgia is in your pelvic floor. Um, and so we're trying to have the therapists loosen that up. Uh, women tend to start using dilators to relax, to stretch the muscles for, you know, entrance type pain. And males will use male as, and females will they can get a wand, which is a tool to use introrectally or intravaginally to work out trigger points. Um, so it's not a sex toy; it is an actual device to relax those muscles. And um, trigger point injections, we do them externally. So we're going through the butt cheeks using landmarks with um, ultrasound guidance. Um, And of course, we're, you know, ordering imaging all the while. And, you know, some patients may end up needing Botox if they're not able to relax those muscles. But um, that's definitely not first line.
1: Interestingly, when you're doing a canalith repositioning maneuver, you might have heard of the Epley maneuver. Some ENTs yeah. actually use a vibrator to jiggle the crystals uh, when they'll hold it to the mastoid as they're doing the maneuver. So uh, you're not the only specialty to use sex toys in the office. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm glad you use that. That approach, uh, I was a little afraid because you mentioned acupuncture before, and then you mentioned the dartboard. So you're not uh, <laughs> using the perineum no. as a dartboard. That's not your comprehensive uh, dartboard approach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just- no, you no,
2: My just, I'm just throwing a lot of darts at one time.
1: You have a lot of arrows in your quiver, and you're using many of them at the same time because these are patients that, f- because when they tend to find you, they tend to find you after an ex- at the end of a very exhausting search.
2: Yeah. I don't think it's fair to just, you know, have them come spend an hour and a half with me talking about it and just throwing them to physical therapy. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, physical therapy can work alone, but you know, I've had patients do it and say, I want to be super, super conservative. I just want to do healthy physical therapy and they go and they get a little bit better, but then they flare or they're sitting for a long periods of time. And so they continue to flare. It's not really fair. I like to, if they're open and in, interested in trying everything they actually get better when they're when they're willing to try everything um, and then the people who who have well like the, the earlier you get diagnosed and treated the better obviously the response is so if someone's coming to me after 7 to 10 years of having this this is way harder to treat you know that's why i also don't want to spend like six six months doing PT and then being like, let's add in everything now. Like I want to just, let's let's get the ball rolling.
1: Yeah. 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 You recognize that they're to use the quicksand analogy again. they're pretty deep in that quicksand and and you need to to do everything you can to get them out in a, in a reasonable period of time. Otherwise they're not going to experience relief in a time period that they find timely and, and might Mm -hmm. abandon treatment. Which we know yeah. as physicians happens all the time.
2: Oh, definitely. And then you all you you feel guilty and and so you feel bad when people aren't getting better quicker. So
1: you you want to do everything you can to get them better. So um, yeah. I think, uh this was a fantastic interview. I really I really learned. First, I never thought I'd be doing as an ENT an interview about pelvic pain, but to uh, <laughs> to, to learn so much about it in such a, a short period of time, it was really great learning experience for me and for the listeners. Is there anything that we didn't mention today that you, you do want to mention?
2: Um, I guess just really quickly, like a couple of diagnoses that like a lot of people don't have never heard. Um, some newer ones that if, if there's any people who've ever heard of like the term hard flaccid and um, PGAD, persistent genital arousal disorder. Both of them are like sexual dysfunction disorders that, could very easily be brushed off as in-your-head type di- diagnosis is. Um, Persistent genital arousal disorder, typically seen in females. However, I, we've seen a few in males where they're persistently aroused. And that that for males does not mean that they are erect. It's not like pre Um It just seems they feel aroused, but they're not necessarily erect. And they don't want to feel aroused. They want it to stop. and they will, And it's very disturbing. They can't function. So it is, you know, a, a lot of people like laugh when I tell them what that is, and and that's like actually the worst when I hear a doctor laughing at that because they're like, that sounds like a great problem to have. It kind of gets a little irritating because these people have the highest suicide rate. Um, they're they're um, they're very distraught. They have to quit their jobs. They can't function. It's incredibly, you know, I get a lot of Instagram messages on social media where people find me because of a hashtag, PGAD, and they're like all over the world and saying like, how can you help me? How can I, you know, I've had this for six years. I've had this for two years. It won't go away. What do I do? And it's very hard. It's very difficult to treat too, because we don't actually know how it's happening. And my role is just kind of treating the pelvic floor and trying and hoping that if we relax it. Similarly, um, hard placid is another condition where a male feels hard but is actually in a state of being flaccid, And it's feeling, and I, have, but yeah, I have a lot of young patients who do this. And what's crazy is that I think they're doing this to themselves when they're reading about how to be good at sex in magazines, in like GQ magazines, where they say, you know, do 100 kegels every day and your penis will be longer and all these like crazy things that they're doing because they're like, you know, in their teens. And then they're over-contracting their muscles. And now they can't get it to stop. And there's that sensation of feeling erect when there are hard, but, we're, you know, not necessarily erect. It's like 40% of an erection when they, when they don't want to. So it's, it's kind of confusing. And, um, you know, honestly, we we don't even know that much about these conditions, but like, I just want people to know that they're real. That's it.
1: Yeah. And, and, one, that's one of the benefits, I guess, of social media as well. Is uh, but but it, in your situation, people aren't are going to have a challenging time finding their community of people with these disorders because there's such a stigma that they um, uh, yeah it's, you're not going to find your fa- your PGAD Facebook group so easily.
2: No, 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 yeah. and and that's the thing. I've had tons of patients find me on Instagram for endometriosis who come to me and you know have actually flown in from different places to come see me but pgad there's only like a a handful of hashtags and they're all mine you know because nobody wants to hashtag that and you know they're they're all like the same people finding seeing them and they're too scared and even my my pgad patients i'm like could you write something about like pgad or something and you know we can because if you Google TAD and you read any of like the cosmopolitan or articles, like the you know, Allure articles about it, they're really bad. They're like all saying how there's no treatment, there's no cure and you basically are stuck with it. And so it gives these people like no hope. It takes away and their so hope. Yeah. that's why yeah, and so but then but these patients are like when when they do get better, they're like, I don't want it, I don't want I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't have it anymore. I'm done with it. Like they're so they, they're like, so like, I don't want to associate myself with having pee yet. I don't want to like talk about it. It's so embarrassing. And, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. But as a physician, I feel like I have to talk about it. So yeah. I figured I would mention it somewhere where nobody's talking about it. So you mentioned social media.
1: So if you could tell us, where can people find you?
2: Um, on Instagram, my name is at Dr. T-A-Y Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D. On Facebook, I am Dr. Tayaba Ahmed, pelvic pain specialist. Um, and
1: two Y's, honestly, and I don't do,
2: yeah, two Ys and one B. And I, that's pretty much all I can extend myself to. So I don't really do much on Twitter or any of the other ones.
1: Well, what about your website?
2: Oh, our website is pelvicrehabilitation.com. So that's nice and easy as long as you spell rehabilitation, correct? (laughs) Um, And we are in Midtown Manhattan, right, right by Grand Central Station. So super convenient for our patients to come in.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Med, for your time. It has been a pleasure.
2: Thank you
0: so much for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Physicians Guide to Doctoring. If you're interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.